0: At Romans 8, verses 18 through 27, now the Apostle Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope according to the will of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, I had a mentor who taught me many things in ministry over well over a decade, and one of those things that, that recurrently comes to my mind is how he would sometimes tell me about what hymns and what lines in famous hymns made him uncomfortable, And on one occasion, he said, you know, there are certain lines in beloved hymns that I really don't want to sing if I'm honest. One of those is, in Jesus' I my cross have taken. And he said, it's the line that says, go then, earthly fame and treasure, come disaster, scorn and pain. In your service, pain is pleasure. With your favor, loss is gain. And my mentor would often say, pain is pleasure? really? Now, what he was making lighthearted jokes about, he understood though that the remedy as listed in that great hymn is in the second part of that particular verse where Henry Light writes, I have called thee Abba Father, I have stayed my heart on thee, storms may howl and clouds may gather, all must work for good to me. Now, Henry Light, the hymn writer, was drawing off of so many of the truths that we're looking at, have already looked at in Romans 8, that the spirit who has been given to us enables us to cry, Abba, Father. And then later on, we'll hear that great verse in Romans eight twenty eight: all things work together for good for those who have been called by God, who, who are called according to his purpose, who know him and love him. But in between Paul telling us that the spirit resides in us and indwells us and enables us to cry out, Abba, Father, and and then telling us all things work together for good for those who are called by God is this section of scripture where the apostle says as he transitions here in verse 18 and moving on from the great privileges of adoption, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of God that is to be revealed in us. That's one of those verses that, like my mentor, would react to that hymn verse. We say, really, Paul? The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going? Really? This is Paul, remember, who in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 says, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. This is the same Apostle Paul who, at the end of 2 Corinthians, in chapter 11, he says that he suffered imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death, five times Lashes, 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with beatings and with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, let me say this, none of us have suffered what the Apostle Paul suffered, and none of us will suffer most likely what he suffered. And yet the Apostle Paul, with all of that suffering, and keep in mind how ready we are to complain about the least inconveniences, that Apostle Paul said the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, that's a man we want to listen to. This is not a man that platformed himself to be seen and heard and respected. He was, he was beaten and mocked. He, he was hungry and thirsty, weary for the sake of the gospel. And yet he understood that whatever he would endure here and now was nothing to what God had prepared Those that he had called and he loved. And so I want us to note, though, that when Paul takes up the the issue of suffering, he doesn't do it as a sort of a, a stoic. He doesn't he doesn't he doesn't say, listen, just suck it up and take it because it's going to be really great for eternity. He understands that there is real pain and suffering. He understands that these things weigh heavily on people. There are some people, let me say this this morning, there are some people, and most of them go to reformed churches, and they will treat you as if, you know, godliness is just stoicism. Just suck it up and take it. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul will actually say in this chapter that all of creation is groaning under the effects of sin that have entered this world. He will say that we are groaning under the effects of sin and the suffering that we endure. And then he will say that the Spirit himself is groaning in those who are the children of God, longing for what's coming, knowing that this is not what it's supposed to be in the here and now. And so I want us this morning as we come into this to just look at three things together. First, I want us to consider the groaning of creation. And then I want us to consider the groaning of believers And then finally, the groaning of the Spirit. Well, it's very interesting. Paul has tied together three great themes throughout Romans 8. He has mentioned in the early part the greatness of our salvation. Here he mentions the greatness of suffering. And throughout, he will mention the greatness of the security that believers have. Salvation, suffering, and security. And as I've already noted, he mentions in verses 1 through 16, the greatness of the salvation. There is no condemnation. We are free from sin. We can now put sin to death in our lives. We must mortify sin in our lives. And he's given us all of the privileges of sons and daughters who can now approach God as their father and know that they are heirs of all things with Christ. But notice what he does at the end of that section back at the end of verse 16, he says that if we're children, we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Now that's the transition. We have all these blessings of salvation, but what God necessarily causes to accompany those blessings in life in this fallen world is suffering. And that suffering is oftentimes very intense and very painful, very difficult, and it weighs heavily. It weighs heavily on those who are enduring it, but Paul doesn't first and foremost talk about it weighing heavily on believers. He says, notice in verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, who subjected it in hope. Why do we have hurricanes? Why do we have tornadoes? Why do we have floods? Why do we have, why do we have earthquakes? Why do we have um, hurricanes? Why, why do we have these things? Because the creation has been subjected to futility because of the sin of Adam. Um, things are not what they're supposed to be. The natural order of things is in turmoil constantly. Constantly. Um, you know what so many today want to latch onto under the idea of climate change or some other environmental approach is that they're really recognizing that the, the creation itself is subjected to futility and that things are not what they should be. They don't know why things are that way and they try to, they try to put the blame somewhere. Paul, remember, is going to take us back, back in chapter 5, to that, that great exposition of Adam in Christ. And Paul understands that the world is the way it is because Adam did what he did. And, and Adam's sin didn't just affect his offspring, It affected all of creation. Now, you you may be wondering why, why would Adam's sin affect all of creation? Well, there are two reasons, I think. One, remember, Adam was taken from the ground. And so the ground rebelled against its maker. And so God said, From dust you are, to dust you shall return. And now the earth is going to bring forth thorns and thistles. What was going to be an enjoyable way of fulfilling the dominion mandate will now be hard and burdensome, and the earth will not yield like it once would have. Why is that? Because man was taken out of the ground and rebelled against God and would return to the ground uh, it's also because God called man to be the lord of the lower world, as it were, to govern this earth, to, to mine its resources, to use things for the benefit of his offspring. And yet, and yet um, because of man's sin, the earth and creation itself will not do what it would have done at creation in the same way. Everything is frustrated and creation itself, in all of its parts, is frustrated. Notice the way that Paul puts this. He says, notice this, for the creation was subject to futility, not willingly. He says, the creation will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glory of the children of God. Notice verse 22, for we know that the whole creation, the whole creation has been groaning together until now, every part of it. Um, One old writer put it this way, the entire creation Set up a grand symphony of size. The entire creation sets up a grand symphony of size. Um, Creation was affected by the invasion of sin into the world. John Calvin puts it this way there is no element, no part of the world, which being touched, as it were, with a sense of its present misery, does not intensely hope. For a resurrection Now you have to listen very carefully. It's not just that things don't work the way they should. It's not just that creation is not what it was meant to be before Adam sinned. It's not just that that the created order is, is groaning over the burden of having evil and sin touching every part of it. It's that creation is longing for the hope of the resurrection. Now, this is amazing. This is amazing because up until this point, the only hope that Paul has set out is the hope of sinners being justified by the grace of Jesus. The only hope he's set out so far is that God has figured out a way to take unrighteous people and to bring them into a right standing before him. It's, it's, it's salvation. But now what Paul does is he essentially steps back and and he's saying to these believers in Rome, he's saying, listen, there is something so much more than just the individual salvation of sinners. And that is God's purpose to redeem all of creation. Uh, The Apostle Peter understood this so well. And in the book of Acts, He speaks of the regeneration of all things. The rebirth of creation. The regeneration of all things. Um, That same apostle Peter understood what that would look like and in, uh, in one of his epistles he says, nevertheless we according to his promise look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's that's what's coming. Now, notice what Paul does when he talks about the groaning of all of creation. Notice this. He says the creation was subjected to futility, that, that, that even what we're experiencing now, life in a fallen world that doesn't work the way it's supposed to and is not what it ultimately should be, was all part of God's divine plan. It was subjected to futility, Not willingly, it didn't do it to itself, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Um, Augustine used to speak about the Felix Culpa, the blessed fall or the happy fall. And and what his point was uh, regarding Adam and God's purpose and God's sovereignty over the fall and over everything that happens is that if Adam had never sinned, if sin had never entered this world, if creation had never been subjected to futility, we would never understand the greatness of the wisdom and the love and the mercy and the redeeming purposes of God. Not only to redeem sinners out of this world, but to redeem the entire cosmos. Now, he's not talking about redeeming all the angels because some of those are not going to be redeemed. He's not talking about redeeming every person because we know there will be a myriad of people who will perish. He's talking about redeeming the environment in which man was first placed at creation as a new habitation, a dwelling place for God in the spirit to be with his people forever. And what Paul says is that the groaning of the created order is not just the mere sighing over frustration and wishing things were not what they are, but he likens it to a woman in pains of childbirth. Notice this, verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, I don't know anything about the pains of childbirth, and so, ladies, let me just put that out there. I have watched my wife go through them, begging her to get an epidural to relieve those pains. And watching that difference is amazing. But I know that that's an excruciating thing by witnessing it. And what the apostle is saying is, in an analogous way, the whole of creation, the heavens and the earth, are, are like an impregnated woman waiting to bring forth something from it that's going to be new and marvelous. Um, turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. I debated whether to do this, but I think I'm going to for the sake of explanation. There in Hebrews 1, the apostle is explaining who the son is, who the son of God is. And he strings together a whole bunch of Old Testament citations, a whole lot of uh, portions of Psalms and and other portions of the Old Testament. And at the end of of stringing these together, talking about uh, what the Father says to the Son, the communication between the Father and the Son, notice verse 10. The Apostle Paul is going to cite Psalm 102, a verse out of Psalm 102, And and in context, he's saying that there is a divine dialogue between the Father and the Son happening in Psalm 102, and that God the Father is saying to God the Son, listen, you, Lord, so the Father calls the Son Lord because he's God, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Now listen, verse 11, they will perish, but you remain they will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. So what, what Psalm 102 is saying, what the apostle is pointing out here in Hebrews 1 from there, is, is commensurate with what we're talking about, the groaning of creation travailing in birth pains. And what, what the writer of Hebrews says is that, that Jesus who is Yahweh, who is the covenant Lord, wears creation like a garment, and that one day he's going to take it off and fold it up and change it into something new. That's awesome. This is going to be folded up and turned into something new. And we know that something new is a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. No more sin, no more evil, no more suffering, no more sorrow. Now, you can sort of see how Paul embeds this in a section about believers' suffering. Because he's saying, listen, the creation is waiting for the resurrection. The creation is waiting for the regeneration of all things. And Paul says, now look back with me. In Romans, Paul says the creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Notice that at the end of verse 19, for the revealing of the sons of God. That means, this is awesome. That means all of creation is groaning, waiting for your resurrection on the last day. When the sons of God are fully shown to be what we are already in fact. And the resurrection of believers on the last day is going to be the full manifestation of, of adoption, and the full revelation that we are God's children. Because right now, the world can look at you and you don't look any different than anyone else. There's nothing about you. Yes, I understand Christian character marks us off, but in and of yourself, you're still sinners. You look just like everyone else. There's no distinguishing external mark about you. But in that day, when all of the sin is done away and you are raised up to newness of life and you are made perfect in glory and holiness, the creation is going to rejoice because collectively together, God is revealing what he's already doing now on that day. I want to read to you again what John Calvin said. There is no element, there is no part of this world which being touched, as it were, with a sense of its present misery, does not intensely hope for the resurrection. Isn't that awesome? This world is waiting for your resurrection on the last day. Now, Paul not only speaks of the groaning of creation, he speaks of the groaning of believers. Notice this. This is almost in passing. He, he says... Um, He says in verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning. And then notice verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. If you are a believer, there is something going on inside of you throughout your sojourn here. Because God has put his spirit in you, because he has given the spirit as the down payment of the inheritance, because he has said there's so much more to experience because of what Christ has done and because of what has already occurred in you, that believers are groaning inwardly, longing for something better. Longing for something better. Um, you know, it's marvelous that Paul has already told us that God has given us his spirit to indwell us and to bear fruit in us and to help us put sin to death, but, but he tells us that, that he is sympathizing with our groanings. We're going to see that in just a second. Now, now one of the glorious things about what Paul's doing here is that he is, he is saying that it's not just in your experience that you're longing for something better. The creation's longing for it. We're longing for it with all of creation. And the spirit himself, who is the down payment in us, is longing for it. And he is working that longing in us. He is is making us to understand that more and more, we know this is not our home. Because one of the great tensions that we have in this life and, and if you're honest, if you're an honest person, you would admit this. One of the great tensions is that too often we are very comfortable here. And we do forget that this is not our home. And we do love the pleasures of this life too much. And so we need this other thing working in us, pulling us away from that, giving us groanings. And one of the things that helps with that is the suffering that God has appointed for us. That's actually an aid to us to draw our hearts off of the comfort of this world and longing for something more and better. You know, I actually think the Apostle Paul understood this so well because he suffered so much. You know, he who suffers little loves little. He who suffers much loves much. He who suffers little hopes for little. He who suffers much hopes for much. That's really what Paul's saying. Because we are called to suffer. Now that suffering takes all kinds of shapes and forms. In every generation it may look different, the suffering that believers are called to endure. And this is the painful truth. If you're a believer, you are going to suffer. It might be sufferings of broken relationships because you're following Christ. It might be suffering for your sin because you're following Christ. It might be suffering at the hands of persecution because you're following Christ. There are a myriad of ways believers suffer. Um, Listen to this. B.B. Warfield put it this way. He said, he who would live godly must in every age suffer a species of persecution, a species differing in kind with the tone and temper and quality of every age, but always persecution. He who would follow after Christ must meet with many opposers. He who would follow after Christ must meet with many opposers. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't like hearing that. I do not like, my flesh does not like being told, you are going to suffer. Your flesh doesn't like that. But what Paul says is, be of good cheer, because while you will suffer for a momentary time in this life, it is nothing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. Remember, Paul does that weight of glory scale thing between suffering and what's coming in 2 Corinthians 5. And he says that that, that there's a far greater weight of glory for believers. And that that he calls it our light affliction. Everything I read to you at the outside out, outcome of this sermon, at the, the outset, Paul calls light affliction. I mean... Let's be honest. The the slightest suffering comes to us and we melt under it and break under it. And Paul had all this suffering, but he knew that that was only making him long for what's to come. Um, Believers, though, are groaning. It's painful. It's difficult. Um... And now that groaning is driven by hope. Notice what Paul says in verse 24 and 25, some of the great verses in the Bible. For in this hope, we were saved. That's the hope of the resurrection of our bodies. Now in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. So you, you understand what Paul's saying is what we're going to see in this life is suffering and hardship, pain and trials. But, but through them and beyond them, we, we are called to be a people who hope in what we don't see. Faith, the writer of Hebrews says, faith is the substance of things not seen, the evidence of things hoped for. Now Paul says, for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience. You know, I've mentioned to you Johnny Erickson Tata numerous times, and every time I read a portion of scripture like this, I think about her, how joyful she is, how patient she is in the suffering that she's endured. And then I think about how quickly we grumble under the least inconvenience. You see, we need to learn to wait and hope, to patiently endure to hope in what we don't see. Now, there is a third groaning. There is the groaning of creation. There is the groaning of believers. And then there is the groaning of the Spirit. Notice verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, here's one of the marvelous things that the Apostle does. As I already said, he doesn't say, read as many stoical philosophers and writers as you can, suck it up and take it, because life is hard. He says the Spirit helps in our weakness. You see, Paul knew that you are weak. Paul knew that I would be weak. Paul knew that every believer, he doesn't say the spirit helps some believers who happen to be weak. He says the spirit helps in our weakness. This is the great apostle who said, when I am weak, then I am strong. I have gladly boasted needs, infirmities, and wants." that the power of Christ might be present in me. Paul understands that in every way we are weak. We are weak because we're sinful. We're weak because we're finite. We're weak because we're limited in what we know. We're weak because we don't see what God has told us he has prepared for us. We're weak because we don't want to be persecuted. And yet Paul tells us that we have an agent of help in the Holy Spirit. You know, it's really awesome that um, the apostle is essentially telling us in this chapter that the Lord has not only set a hope before us, he's placed a help within us. Isn't that great? He's not only placed a hope before us, he's put a help within us. The Spirit helps in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. Who here has ever felt difficulty in prayer? Getting on your face and saying, Lord, I don't even, I want to see a show of hands, because if you don't do this, you're not being honest to yourself. Who here has felt what it is not to know how to pray? You get on your face and you say, Lord, I don't even know how to pray right now. When I'm enduring right now at the hands of this person, or in this situation, or in this circumstance, I don't even know what to pray. Have mercy, help. And what Paul says is that's a common thing for believers, because we are weak. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. And spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep to utter what's going on when we're crying out to the Lord for deliverance from some particular sin or some circumstance or some persecution or oppression when we are on our face before him crying out to him and we are feeling inside us these strong urges to cry out to the Lord that's the Holy Spirit working in us And then what often happens, and mature believers who have experienced this through their lives start to come to understand what starts to happen. The Holy Spirit starts to bring God's word to bear in our prayers. And we start to have a fluidity of praying his word to him. Lord, you have said I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lord, you have said you will be with us in the fire. You have said I will be with you. I will keep you. I will guide you with my right hand. All those precious promises. Lord, you healed Bartimaeus when he cried out to you, son of David, have mercy on me. And we're crying out, Lord, have mercy on me. And that's the spirit groaning in us, bringing these prayers before the throne of grace because we don't know how to pray as we ought because we are weak. Now, let me say this this morning. Um, I mentioned recently that there are many ministers that will talk about you just embracing your weakness. And really what they mean by that is just, you know, embrace your failure. I, I don't think Paul's saying that. I think Paul's saying is while you acknowledge that you're weak, acknowledge that God has put his spirit within you to assist you, to comfort you, to guide you, to intercede for you, to groan within you, To help you to know how to pray when you don't know how to pray in those times of suffering. You know, there are are more lessons to be learned in the crucible than in the classroom. And we will not learn them until we're in the crucible. We can have a head full of knowledge and think we know everything. And then when God puts us in those situations where we are out of control, we don't have control, that the enemy is gunning for you, you feel overwhelmed like you're going to drown, is when he teaches you the greatest lessons and sustains you with that hope before you and the spirit within you. And that's glorious. You know, I mentioned to you that the Apostle Paul touches on three things in this chapter. Salvation, suffering, and security. And really what he's doing here, isn't he? He's telling us, how do you know that you're going to be secure even when you're not secure? Especially when you're not secure. When you're being opposed. When you're suffering for your faith in Christ. When your family member hates you for your faith in Christ. When your co-workers are gunning for you. When somebody betrays you. When somebody comes at you and runs at you with all their force because they want to destroy you. And Paul says, listen, you are secure because all of creation is groaning with you. You're groaning for the resurrection God has promised you. And the spirit is groaning in us and enabling us to cry out to God in the midst of those situations until until that same spirit raises us back up on the last day Unto eternal life. And that's why, I'm going to close with this. That's why Paul could say at the beginning of this section, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. Now, I'm going to say this I don't know what you've suffered, and I don't know what you will suffer, but I know that suffering is a common lot for the children of God. I know that we have been promised suffering. And I know that we are to arm ourselves with a mind that is prepared to suffer, even while we recognize our weakness, even when the creation around us is groaning in turmoil. And at the end of the day, the way we prepare our minds is to meditate often on that future guaranteed resurrection unto glory when every son of God and daughter of God is revealed to all of creation, as what we are, in fact, the children of God and heirs of Christ. And that means whatever we are called to endure in this life is nothing compared to what God has in store for us. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this marvelous portion of scripture and the hope that it holds out to us. Lord, we do acknowledge that we see the creation around us groaning. We have known, Lord, in our spirits what it is to groan, and we are comforted, our God, that your Holy Spirit indwells us and groans in us, interceding for us with words that for us are too deep at times to utter. Our God, we thank you that you have given us your spirit to sustain us through any suffering that you may call us to go through. Father in heaven, would you arm us with the same mind with which you armed the Apostle Paul? And would you make us a people who hope in what we do not see, but wait for it with patient hope and endurance? Father in heaven, would you give us a greater measure of your indwelling spirit. And as we come to the table, we pray that you would stir up in us that glorious truth that Christ has endured all the suffering and all the hardship in our place that he might secure for us the hope of the resurrection on the last day. And so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please prepare us as we come now to the table. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.